0: Listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, a couple of things before we get started, and this is going to be a pretty awesome episode. I've been looking forward to it, and I, I may have hinted at it a little bit in terms of who I had on for tonight, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. But before I do, I want to just recognize everyone out there in my audience. Again, you guys are really what gives this a sense of meaning and purpose. We recently got to 3,000 downloads, which is pretty cool, especially considering that when I started this podcast... I really didn't think anyone was going to listen, but apparently you guys like the show and I'm happy that you guys like it. And I'm going to continue giving you guys, you know, as, as best quality content as I can. Now, besides that, uh, I wanted to recognize a couple of new listeners out there. We got my, I got my first listener in Japan. So if you listen in Japan, thank you very much. Uh, a couple of new listeners in Sweden, um, a couple of new listeners, uh, new listeners in Norway, a lot from the UK, you know, UK, you guys out there, I don't know if it's just, you know, the language thing. Um, but uh, you guys definitely, definitely represent and I uh, want to thank you guys out there in the UK, Germany, Denmark, New Zealand, Australia, Peru, Bolivia, you know, it's nice to know that you're reaching a wide audience and um, you guys make this, make this, make this, uh, you know, an important part of my life. So I want to thank all you guys for that. And um, now for the shameless self-promotion part of it, um, and <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, Um if you like the show, take some time, give me a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Really what that does is it just helps my podcast get to a, a wider audience, which is really want, what I want to do. I want the audience to continue to grow. I'd like to get this content out to as many people as possible because you know, as far as I know, this I'm the first person doing this. And it's nice to be able to not only get This information out, but it also helps me engage with other people. I do get feedback on again from people that I end up having on the show as guests, and uh, I like that. I like to get the show out there, and again, you know, have a couple of minutes. Leave me a five star review if you like the show, and again, that goes for everybody. Really, you know, if if there's other podcasts that you listen to, give them a nice review, write a couple of nice comments because it it helps. You know, and um, again, it helps get the podcast out there to a broader group of people. You want to get as much, you know, you want to get it out there as best as you can, and those five star reviews helps. Uh, also there is, uh, a podcast feature on Amazon now. So I'm going to see if that's something that I can get on there, if I can get the show to get on Amazon, if it's worth my while, you know, it might, it would be pretty cool. Again, might kind of, you know, broaden the audience a little bit. And, um, a couple of tech things this time of year is kind of hectic. It's, it's getting near Christmas. So space becomes a premium in my house. And I felt like I had my audio really, really dialed in. Uh, and, um, apparently what happened was, you know, Christmas presents or whatnot, all that stuff. You know, I I got kind of booted out of my studio by that. I mean my closet, which is basically just a walk-in closet. I get good audio in there. I mean, if you, if you're kind of familiar with audio, you want to kind of be in a room that's really, really silent, has good sound insulation and whatnot. So now I'm in my frog room and it is pretty loud. There's actually a lot of background noise down here. I originally started doing the show from down here because I thought it would be interesting in case anything started calling but then i realized it's it's actually it's actually really annoying and a lot of timers going i ended up having to unplug three pumps which i'm probably going to end up having to reprime again anyway cuz i don't like to unplug unplug them uh you know timers water features frogs calling who knows There's going to be a little bit of background ambience, but we're going to have to persevere so i hope it doesn't cause too much of a, too much confusion but and again if you hear my dogs going nuts in the background it happens We've been getting deliveries non-stop to the house. They get a little uh, worked up, shall we say, when we, the doorbell rings or whatnot. So uh, that's about it. Uh, invested in some new technology. I'm going to be using a, a new microphone probably around the beginning of January, and we'll see how that goes. But as far as my guest goes, um, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Why don't, I, uh, why don't I let her introduce herself? So tell us, introduce yourself.
1: My name is Stefania, also known as the dart frog queen on the interwebs.
0: Absolutely. And um, I've been looking to get you on the show for a long time. So everyone, I just want to give uh, Stefania a big thanks for coming on the show. She was actually one of the first guests I wanted to reach out to, and I'm, I'm really pleased that she agreed to do this show. So um, how are you doing tonight, Stefania?
1: Oh, I'm really great. I'm honored. I'm so excited to talk frogs again after so long.
0: Yeah, the, no the honor is all mine, actually. And I know you were you were quite a presence in the hobby for a long time. You had a lot of cool YouTube videos out, and when I got back into the hobby, I actually watched a, a lot of your YouTube videos just to kind of get a handle on, um, you know, how husbandry had kind of updated a little bit in the years that I wasn't in it anymore. Plus, you had a really cool collection. You had a lot of animals. So, why don't we um, why don't we back up though before we get to all that? Why don't you tell us your story? I mean, how did your interest in animals begin, and what ended up like leading you towards keeping frogs, especially dark frogs?
1: Well, I've always loved animals, but I wasn't really allowed to have much growing up. Um, so in my, in my early 20s, I realized there was this whole world of animals, you know, beyond the normal cat, dog, bird, rabbit, right? And it kind of blew my mind, to be honest. I started with um, bearded dragons, um, and I quickly discovered that desert animals were not my jam. You know, not because I didn't love the bearded dragon, but it was like the husbandry. It just I didn't have the touch for it. And um, going to you know pet stores for crickets and and the like. I remember one time I walked into this pet store and I saw this this little glass box. And it was this little slice of jungle, and there were these two colorful frogs, and I was fixated. It was like love at first sight. Every time we went there, you know, every week to get crickets, I I stopped and I was pretty much there for half an hour just watching them hop around. And after about a month, they were still there. And so I bought it. I just bought the whole thing. I, I didn't know anything about them. I just, I was like, can I have this? And so they sold it to me and I took it home. And that's actually when I, started doing a little more research and uh, i remember thinking like wow it's like pokemon you got to catch them all you know there's like so many different kinds um and that's kind of where it began to be honest
0: that's funny cuz that's not the first time someone's used the pokemon analogy i had um, <laughs> i i had um i had mike mike novi on a couple episodes back and mike was a great guest and he he said it, it was almost his exact words he goes hey you got to catch them all it's like yeah I mean, me, yeah,
1: but, definitely
0: my age there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I, I when I first started out in the hobby, that was definitely how I was. I had a lot more of an interest in just kind of acquiring as, as much and much as much as I could. But then, like the older I got, especially recently within the past maybe year or so, I kind of backed off a little bit. I just I'm happy to just have a more manageable collection now than trying to get everything I possibly can. But initially, like when I first started, I was just like you. I had that same that same uh, like bug, you know, to get, I had to get everything. But, you know, since then I've, I've kind of, kind of changed, but.
1: Yeah, I guess, I guess this was never in quantity. The quantity kind of happened on its own. I just, I was just blown away by how many different they were and how beautiful they were. And that's kind of how it happened. I was never like, Oh, I need to have all of them, but I would find more and more. And I would be like, "Wow!" And then erotus, but then Terribilis, but then the variabilis. and you know, and it just kind of escalated like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's the same way with me. It's like when I, I mean, I, I started out with erotus a long time ago, about 15 years ago, and I didn't have that a tremendous amount of success with them. But when I started getting into tinctorious then i i mean i started off with the patricia and of all things in Oyapak, which are kind of back in the hobby now but i had um yeah i had uh basically those are my two you know beginners back in you know, when i got back into the hobby again about five years ago but what i found was that there's so many locales and Mm -hmm. once you see one it's like oh man it's like I, i have to get this i have to get this i have to get this then you realize just the, the absolute diversity of the number of species out there just becomes so overwhelming.
1: Yeah. I really want to experience all the different kinds, you know, cause I, I saw just how different they were even from each other. And that's why I wanted the, the diversity because what you can get from like, um, from like an Isabel, who was talking about that? Um, or you can get from like an Isabel. you're not going to get from a, I don't know, a Camelio or an arrow.
0: It's okay. My dog's barking too. So don't, <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. I just, yeah. Like, in the, you know, in the, the preface of the episode, I kind of, you know, I noted that I was like, it's going to be, this episode is going to be a little bit noisy, but so no, it's, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Um, now when you were a beginner, what were some things that you picked up as a beginner that kind of led you to becoming more of a uh, more of like a, an advanced keeper? Because you, you you kept quite a few species that required, you know, some some degree of um, you know of of proficiency. So I mean, what, what was it like starting out a beginner? Like, what were some mistakes you made? Some things you learned along the way.
1: Um. Well, hmm, to better answer that question, I once I got into the frog hobby. I realized that there was a community of froggers. I, I live in Sarasota, Florida. And so in this area of Florida, kind of like the Gulf Coast, there's a community of froggers that are all connected on, on like a Facebook group. And so they would have kind of annual or biannual frog meets at people's houses. And that is where, that is where I got a lot of my inspiration and a lot of mentorship. Um, and so I actually had a mentor who was incredible and he was able to kind of guide me in the beginning, teaching me different techniques and anytime I would have like an experience that I didn't know what to do with, I would call him up and he would kind of guide me through it.
0: Yeah, it's definitely important having someone who's experienced help you along the way. I mean, I kind of went into this blind because I mean, I came from this I mean, now more and more I'm realizing it's kind of like an archaic way of thinking, but like I came from this attitude where like, when I first started out in the hobby in like the, the, you know, late eighties, early nineties. And by that, I don't necessarily mean keeping dart frogs, but just keeping frogs and, and other amphibians and whatnot in general was that if you could care for one, you could care for all of them. And the more, ad, I guess, advanced I got in my keeping methods, the more I realized that like, I, I know nothing, you know? And, finding that one person who knows so much about one species or one locale really just benefits your 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 progress in the hobby so much because it's like you know i, I think i used this analogy once before but it's like all right well, like you have a dog in your house you know a domestic dog it's a large carnivore but that doesn't mean that you know how to ca- care for a tiger or a wolf or a manatee i mean they're all mammals but they're incredibly different and there's a lot of that you know in the you know, it, with different amphibian species. I mean, obviously, you know, if I can care for something like a white's tree frog, which is essentially kind of like the generic like beginner frog, oh, then I can care for anything. But I was wrong. I, I didn't know that. And then the more I started talking to people on, I mean, i do not really big on like the forums and whatnot, but the more I kind of started like lurking, I guess, and actually just listening to what other people had to say, reading their conversations and whatnot, that helped me. So I definitely see where you're coming from in, in terms of like mentorship. That's pretty cool. You guys had a group down there too.
1: Yeah. They're still, they're still around. There's still a bunch of them that are in the hobby and it's really nice because in these meets we would kind of, um, we would always take whatever we had to sell, whether it be animals or plants or materials and we would trade and sell. And it was, it was awesome. So most of my frogs actually came from fellow keepers. Actually, I would say the vast majority, um, most of them came from my mentor in the first couple of years, for sure. Uh, but beyond that, they all came from just fellow hobbyists. I would—I used to get the question all a um, lot: "Where do you get your frogs?" And it was just from other hobbyists.
0: I've gotten that too. I mean, there's been uh, I, when I when I got back into the hobby, I kind of went with some of the um, larger establishments, and I got I got good quality animals, but I wasn't getting kind of what I wanted, so to speak. So I ended up reaching out to more private breeders. There really isn't any, well, actually, there is is a couple of people out here, so I I really shouldn't say that. But um, I wasn't really familiar with anybody on a personal enough level like you guys were to kind of swap back and forth and whatnot. But one of the breeders I reached out to who had, I mean, this is going back to like the late 80s, early 90s, he had a a big uh, influence on the hobby and he got a lot of species started and I made a purchase from him and I thought to myself, maybe I should just reach out to him and ask him a couple of questions. And I reached out to him three, we went back and forth like three or four or five times and the dedication, you know, to the hobby and the concern for the animals and whatnot was amazing. I'm like, I'm not getting this with like these, you know, big places. I'm getting them with small kind of, you know, mom and pop type operations. So it really made a difference for me because now I realize that, okay, if I have a question, I can ask someone and not, and, actually get an answer and a good answer too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I find that the big companies are really great for people that maybe don't have the community aspect or if you're looking for a specific species and nobody else has it, you know? So I definitely think that they play a really, a really integral part, but there's nothing like creating a personal relationship with another frogger and sharing experiences and sharing plant cutting, you know?
0: Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, it's it's funny because people think that like you have to be like a master, like a gardener or master plant keeper to, to build a lot of these vivariums. And some people are just like so amazingly in tune with plants. I mean, I, I have a couple of plants. I mean, I, I I cheat. I use a lot of pothos, but just because it's you know I've had the same I've had the same clipping of pothos for like almost like twenty five years. I bought a pothos twenty five years ago, and I just took cuttings of it. And now it's in, like, probably all of my vivariums. So it's in probably, like, uh, I'm, I'm looking at them now, maybe 12 vivariums all from the same pathos. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the other plants I experimented with, um, like Fitonia and um, some of the Macravias, like, they just, I don't know, they didn't do f- as well for me as some other plants, like the pothos and the bromeliads and whatnot. But, I mean, what, what I mean, did you get into the plant aspect of it as much as the animal aspect of it?
1: I did not. I did not. I love the plants and I love looking at them, but I could never get into remembering the names. And for some reason, I just could never get into that part. But there were many of the froggers in our group that that were into it. And so I ended up having really cool plants in my vivarium due to these really awesome guys, like being like, you need to have this and you need to have this and you need to have this. And so I ended up having an awesome collection of little, little plants in my vivarium, but I... I was never
0: that person. Yeah, there's a lot of people that, that take it really, really seriously. And some of them, some of them don't even have frogs in the vivariums. They're all plants. I know that like some people are really, really into moss. And I had a couple of different forays into moss with different, some some I had really good results with, some I didn't. But some of the pictures I've seen like on Instagram of like these vivariums that are, it's just moss. And it's 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 incredible. And it's like, I I don't think I could pull that off to the extent that some of these people do, but... And I have yeah, some... Really, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: Oh, no, no, sorry. I was just saying they do a really great job.
0: Yeah, I have some plants that'll take over one vivarium. Like I have one, I have um, ficus in there. And it took over the whole vivarium. I took some cuttings, put it elsewhere, and they just shriveled up and died. So it's weird. I don't know. Yes,
1: I've had that happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: which which species did you start with?
1: I started with aratus. Um... That was the beginning. And then and then I started getting into tinks. I had a couple of tinks. It's kind of where I started. And very soon after, I found rinitimaeus. You'll have to forgive my pronunciation. I've been out of this for so long, it seems. Um, I found them, and I was so excited for the little frogs. I was, I never understood too far into
0: Aratus, but Ranatamea were definitely some of my favorites. The Ranatamea, I know you've obviously been out of the hobby for a while, but the Ranatamea have become extremely popular now. And when oh. I, yeah, there are a lot of beginners actually start out with them too. And no way! Yes, yes way. <laughs> I, I had quite a few conversations with, with previous guests about just nothing other than like Ranatamea and then there's a lot of, there's a lot of locales available now and they're not perceived with the same. I mean, like going back a while. I mean, I remember when I first saw them come out, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to keep these things alive. And I, only, <laughs> I, I, I had, I had, um, uh, Oh, I don't even remember. I don't even remember the species. It was going back a while. is probably going back about maybe, maybe four years. And I don't even remember that, but I didn't have that, the amount of, uh, the amount of success that I had hoped that I would have had with it. But, uh, Yeah, they are pretty popular now. In fact, they're actually on on waiting lists. A lot of people will be looking to get different species around a ranitomeya, and they're they might be waiting six months, a year, whatever. Wow!
1: No way. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. Way that and a lot of. I feel of like
1: the, I had a hard time sourcing some ranitomeyas
0: throughout the years. Yeah, they they're available pretty much anywhere. All you have to do is look. Uh, Pamilio kind of got big for a while, and now it's really the a lot of the large obligates like sylvatica are pretty popular. Uh, that's Pimil- just when I
1: exited.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would be. Yeah, that sounds about right. So it's interesting because a lot of the species that were kind of starter species, like my, I, I said before, like my, I started off with Patricia, and I, I have three of them. I have three big female Patricias. I don't, uh-huh. I don't see them that often anymore. I don't see. Patricia, yeah, I don't see them for sale that much, I mean, like, on occasionally they will, but right now the big thing is uh, the big thing is all thumbnails and a lot of the large obligates among b- believe it or not among beginners and serious keepers as well
1: wow,
0: yeah I'm impressed it's I know it's pretty wild I mean again, you you know you I know you're not in the hobby anymore, but you've been in it longer than I have, so it, it's 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 funny because you take a break for a while and then you realize what's available I mean, like when I started out. And I kind of took a break from the hobby for a while. That was when Pamilio were kind of coming into the hobby, and I heard people like, "Oh, they were like dropping serious coin on Pamilio." I was like, "I'm, I'm not, I ain't part oh, of this yeah. thing." Like, <laughs> but now they're, yeah, they're not as they're not as difficult as people make them out to be. I mean, they have certain caveats and whatnot, but there are some pretty ama- there are some pretty amazing people out there who are doing a lot of work with them.
1: Yeah. I remember when I started, the the main starter frogs were tinks. That's what was everywhere. All kinds of tinks everywhere.
0: Yeah, I mean they're still around, but you're not seeing the same locales that you. I mean, it, it kind of varies by year to year. Right now, um, I'm trying to think. I don't really, I don't. Honestly, I see very little attention paid towards tinks now. There was. Uh, and I, guess, I don't know if it was an import or something like that. It might have come in from Wakiri, but there was a lot of Oyapok that made their way back into the hobby. And I had, wow. yeah, I had never, I hadn't seen an Oyapok since I bought my first one. And this one's actually, I think it's my oldest current dart frog, but this one, I, I think it's, a, it's, it's so hard cause he's so small. I think it's a male cause I was checking the toe pads, but they're kind of coming back in now people are starting to keep them again because i had mentioned to someone yeah i've had an OIPOC for like 5 years I'm like where'd you get it i'm like I, honestly i just picked it up at a local shop they just happened to have it so i don't even know what the lineage of it was but they were like near impossible to find for the longest time until a, until an import came in i th- i think it was i think it was wakiri but now there's a couple of breeders that are that are working with them
1: that's so interesting
0: yeah yeah i mean which like which tanks did you start out with
1: Which tanks? Yeah. Um, I think Powder Blues were amongst, and Patricia's. Powder Blues and Patricia's were my first. And some New Rivers. Oh my God, the New Rivers. They were amazing. They were my favorite tank for sure. And the green sit.
0: Yeah. I don't, they're still popular, but not to the extent that they were going back maybe like a cu- couple of years, I know a couple of people that only they only breed uh they only breed sips in, in terms of tanks and they don't breed any they don't breed any other tanks but but sips I never really quite understood what the appeal was to them i mean what like, like why did you gravitate towards them
1: the the green sips yeah. oh the varying offspring i mean just the different colors that you would get the teals and the blues and the greens it was amazing i was i i had i think two two tanks of green sips. I had two pairs um if I remember correctly and I just loved the colors it was amazing I just particularly loved the colored teal so having a teal frog and they were extremely bold I mean it was it was magical
0: <laughs> yeah I've seen I I know when you're in your YouTube videos you place a lot of emphasis on them in fact it was one of the species that I remember seeing all the time and I was like I mean, maybe it's just because, like, you don't really see it through the camera because I I I don't think I've ever actually seen an adult sip in person. So I know a lot of people rave about them, but I guess I'm assuming maybe I'm missing something through the, you know, through the screen or something.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: 100%. Now, you made quite a few YouTube videos. I mean, even, like, your your Frog Room tour, you got, like, 22,000 views. Now, what like what made you decide to create a YouTube channel? Because you spent a lot of time and effort showing off different species and some of your like breeding successes and your frog rooms and whatnot. Like, what, what was the impetus to start the channel?
1: Well, the, I started on Instagram, right. And I honestly, in the beginning it was private because I, I wasn't even looking to connect with the public, if you will. I was just looking to post and share all of these beautiful animals. Cause I just couldn't keep it to myself. You know, they were just so stunning. And, um, and so I made the Instagram public, and it it went crazy, right? I started getting just a bunch of people really interested, and through the years, I got an unsurmountable amount of requests for for um, for a YouTube channel. Everybody just wanted me to post on YouTube, which I never really understood. But I was like, okay, guys, fine. So finally, I started. Posting longer videos. This was back when Instagram, when I was on Instagram, we couldn't post for longer than I think it was like some seconds and then they extended it to a minute. But once I got out of the hobby, that's when they allowed people to start posting longer videos on Instagram but so what I did is I would just post longer videos on YouTube instead of Instagram. And that's kind of why that started, but I'm not, I'm not like a videographer or anything. I didn't know what in the world I was doing. I was literally just grabbing my phone and just walking around my house and just talking, you know, and just showing things. I didn't know how to edit anything. Like I, it was super, super rustic if you will. I was actually surprised that anybody would even want to watch a video, you know? Um, but that's kind of what I did. And as I as I perfected different techniques and and found like sourced different materials or or as I was experiencing different things, I would just video it and post it. You know, that's kind of how that happened. I didn't mean it to be anything other than just sharing to help somebody who who may not have a mentor, you know, like I did. Uh, to kind of show them something that could be simple for somebody that knows, but very aggravating for somebody that didn't have somewhere to learn it from.
0: Well, it was definitely helpful to me. Like when I got back into the hobby, I had been out for quite some time. And I started watching YouTube videos. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you want to kind of avoid. There's a lot of, like, I'm not a big fan of like the, like the spectacle type of stuff, you know what I mean? Like the show and tell type of thing. But yeah. yours, your your channel was great because it was um what's the word I'm looking for? It, it it was very it was like very, very like focused like on the frogs and not so much about like all like any kind of like sensationalism or anything like that. It was like productive stuff. I mean like like feeding videos and I know you made a video on um uh culture and fruit flies and I, what interesting what, what I picked up from that video was the amount of Excelsior that you put in was a lot more than what I was putting in. And I noticed that I actually got better yields when I just jammed more Excelsior into the culture. So, th- I mean, that was just something that I picked up from you, but it's little thi- make- Yeah, no, it's just, it's put, it's just, it's little things like that that really make a difference. And especially for someone who was, you know, getting into the hobby. And obviously it's, you know, it's, it's been a couple of years. Some things have changed, but not nothing like really that dramatic, but it's, it's little things like that that definitely help people along the way, because I mean, I was just thinking, I was like, all right, well, I don't really need to use that much Excelsior. I can kinda of just, you know, cheap out a little bit. But when I saw you just like stuff almost the whole <laughs> almost the whole deli cup with it, I was like, all right. I was like, it's working for her. I was like, she has a large collection, she feeds a lot of frogs, let me try it. And and I got better I got better results.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know, once you source the materials in bulk, you know, because I have a food business and I'm used to buying everything in bulk, it was very natural for me to just That's why it was easy for me to have such a huge collection because I was already used to living in bulk and consuming in bulk for that organization. And so naturally I was like, Oh, I'll just source bulk Excelsior. Right. So I paid like, what was it? Like 30 bucks for a 10 pound box. And even though I was making 24 cultures a week, it lasted me forever.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That was actually another thing that I picked up from you because I was buying my Excelsior kind of like, like piecemeal. And then I thought to myself, all right, well, I mean, obviously I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was kind of like delusional. I was like, obviously I'm committed at this point. Like I'm going to be feeding these things for a long time and I'm going to be feeding a lot of them. So I I bought like a huge like case of Excelsior. And this is like, this is actually going back a while. This is before COVID started. So this was going back maybe mm, February of last year. So I bought this huge like bale of it and I'm I've still barely made a dent in it. I think it was like 50 bucks for the whole bale. I'm like I'm definitely getting more of a value for my money on this and it's just it's it's still here. I just it's like the big remember that crate from A Christmas Story with a, with the leg in it? The leg lamp. Yes. It's like that. It was just it's all excelsior. So I'm still working on that. And I bought like 500 cups of uh 500 like 32 ounce deli cups and lids just in bulk and it was you know it was expensive at the time but I'm still using them and I hadn't had to buy them in the longest time.
1: Right. And that's what made it easy for me. That's exactly what I would do. I would go to the the restaurant supply and that's where I would just get my cups and then all the the lids to feed the geckos. So it was, it was really affordable. The most expensive of it all was the, the, the fly media, you know, and then you just got to buy the big buckets and then it just is what it is, you know, but.
0: Were you make, I I don't remember, were you making your own media or were you using pre-prepared?
1: Oh no! I was using Rapachi's Superfly. Through the that was the one that that produced the most for me. That was also cost effective because there were some that were more expensive and produced equally as well. But I found that I didn't get any smell or mold, and that it produced amazingly consistently. So stuck with it.
0: Yeah, I I used it once and. It's. I mean, it is a bit pricey. I used it one. It's. I used a couple different media over the years, and right now I'm using kind of a home, uh, a home uh, recipe, so uh, you know, so to speak. I didn't have the same experience that everybody else has. I mean, there was also some other things that I had to take into account, like adding vinegar. I found that once I started adding vinegar and a little bit more cinnamon to my mix, I wasn't getting mold because there was a year where I was just I was losing like cultures constantly to mold and i was using a, a a pre-prepared media that i had bought and i'm like i was like i'm doing something wrong i was like i'm spending all this money on this media only to lose it and then i added vinegar and i was like okay well now i'm not losing flies to crashed cultures let me see how it goes that was just how it worked out for me but i um, i know that I, sorry no no go ahead find, i'm sorry i
1: find that um that fly media was a very personal thing. You know, everybody kind of had their own thing that worked for them. And I do definitely think that the factors of where you keep them in your house and the temperature and the humidity all plays a role in how it works for one person and not another.
0: It's definitely personal because I've had conversations with quite a few people. It's it's when I interview people, it's, it's actually one of the questions I ask is, what are you making, like, what fruit fly media are you using and are you doing melanogaster or hideii? Because everybody's different. I have some people that only use melanogaster. I have some people that use 50-50 and I've had people that make their own media. I've had people swear by prepared media. It, it, it just, it varies so much that like I've never, <laughs> I was never really able to get like a straight answer out of anybody. Well, I got straight answers, but they were never consistent with what anybody else said. Right.
1: You know, that's something that I talked about a lot in, in while well, I was Instagramming is that there's no like one right way to really do most things like everybody has their way and it's not right or wrong it's just more so what works for the individual because at the end of the day if the animal is alive and thriving and it's got the right conditions all of the different variables you know, there just isn't like a right or wrong way, which I think that's what made it really difficult to provide um, for, for people to provide care and husbandry information that was all encompassing. And I think that was kind of the challenge in the hobby. And the reason that I started sharing my experiences was because I found such a huge variance in all of the information that I was seeking when I was coming into it. You know, like you would try to, to look for like, how do you do substrate, you know, and then you look at five places and they all say something different and then you don't know which one is better and you don't know what to invest in and you don't have like a person to ask what their, you know, how long that the substrate lasts or, or whatever. I mean, that's just an example. But that's when I was like, oh, like how how amazing would it be for somebody to just get an easy answer. From my experience, you know, whether it worked for them or not, but at least it would be just a hey, this works for me. This is how it works for me. This is where I got it. This is how long it lasted me, et cetera, et cetera. And just to be able to start that conversation.
0: Well, that's that's definitely, you know, a great thing, a great way to get into it because I find that, I mean, with anything in life, people can kind of be a little bit critical if you do something in a way that's different from what they do. So, Like the older I've gotten, the more I've learned to think to myself, all right, well, I don't really need to criticize this person because whatever they're doing works. Their animals are healthy, they look like they're in good condition and whatnot. But I I don't know. I mean, one of the reasons why I always kind of avoided like social media and and groups and whatnot is because I, I found that certain like certain forms certain communities and whatnot um can be a little bit rough on people who are beginning or people who even just like who've been in the hobby for a while but like there are questions that i've been embarrassed to ask because i kind of don't want to get like hazed like i'm a new keeper but you know just a simple question like well you know how often do you change your leaf litter around can result in like a whole big you know a uh, whole big disaster so i mean. I don't know. It's just like you said. You want to compare notes with people, but you also have to respect the fact that different people have different methods that are different in in subtle ways. But I mean, even something like a misting schedule. I mean, the 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 ambient humidity in my basement is relatively high at different times. You know, certain times of year, so I have to back my misting schedule off because that's just that's the microclimate here. But someone who lives right. in a, like a hotter, drier area. at all year might have a different schedule. And like, why beat that person up for it?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I found that in the beginning, when I was looking for community, I found, I found some places to be a little elitist, you know, and I was, I was also very embarrassed to ask questions, which is why I was so grateful to find the local community. Uh, I feel like I was very fortunate to find them because everybody was so understanding and so supportive and I'm still in touch with all of them actually even though I'm not in the hobby we're still you know Facebook friends and everything Um, but I was able to have kind of that safe space to ask them questions and so I really wanted to kind of provide that through my Instagram post and then later on the YouTube channel to provide that for other people, just a safe space to kind of ask questions. And, um, and I found that in my Instagram, I appealed mostly to people that weren't in the hobby or that were new or that didn't have community. And so they were able to kind of find that within uh, what my account became. And I was just so happy to kind of provide that for people.
0: That's an interesting dynamic. I'm I'm actually glad you mentioned that because it was one of the things that I noticed was like on a lot of your videos, like especially the frog room tour. I mean, room tours are always really popular. I was reading this article about YouTube and the different types of videos that people look for, like especially with animals. And for some reason, like feeding videos are really, really popular. People like to just watch that. And even (laughs) people who are not... In the hobby, per se, well, just they like to watch animals eat. Apparently, especially like exotic animals. I mean, did you ever like int- have interactions with people who weren't in the hobby or in the community? And they like like would you have a conversation with someone who says, "Hey, look, I, I have know nothing about frogs, but I like your videos. What can you tell me about them?"
1: Oh yeah, all the time um I feel like most of the people that followed me on Instagram were were exactly that people that weren't at all in the hobby and that were kind of stumbled upon it and then were were really interested in what I was posting and I was more than happy to kind of provide basic information and then there were definitely people that would reach out for like more in-depth more in-depth questions and sometimes I would post that on a public post if it was relevant and helpful for others. But I had so many people that were just, um, oh, my gosh, what is this? Are they poisonous? You know, and so I was able to to cover that very frequently. And I think that it was kind of a good thing for the hobby in in the sense of spreading positive information and not shaming people for asking, you know, just kind of creating like a positive space for that. And I've heard so many times that people were maybe scared to get into the hobby or whatever. And due to my, my posts and the information that I was able to share that they felt confident enough to get into it. And then they had really positive experiences themselves with their own, you know, dart frog journey. And uh, that was, that was like the best thing that I could ask for, you know, just to be a positive influence.
0: That is very true. I mean, again, that was my personal experience with the videos was exactly that. And one of the things about YouTube is when you're watching YouTube videos, you don't necessarily have to interact with anyone. So if you're looking up, say, like dart frog care or like dart frog room tour or or tree frog care, tree frog, regardless of whatever it is, I know I always I always kind of skew the show dart frog. And I'm sorry, I, everyone out there that I do that so much. But it's you don't have to get on a form and ask a question. you can kind of look for the information and you don't you don't necessarily have to comment on the video or like the video or do anything like that, but it puts you in more of a neutral perspective, so you don't have to ask the question and worry about someone you know saying that's a stupid question or you should know that or anything in that vein because all you have to do is just watch the videos and after a while hopefully you get an idea in terms of who's giving good information and who's giving not so good information but it's it's definitely a great way to interact with a hobby without necessarily being involved in it or like you said if you want to just if you're concer- if you want to get involved with it but you want kind of like a like a bird's eye view in terms of what's involved then YouTube is definitely the place to go for that yeah i think so too which um, I mean, at one point at your I guess at your, your peak, you were working with quite a few species. Like which which species were you working with at the time while you were in the hobby? And what, what are some of your favorites?
1: Oh my goodness! So at my peak, I had over probably over fifty species. Um, probably over fifty species. Oh my gosh! Probably more because I had I had about thirty five frog tanks something like that 35 40 frog tanks and then and that was just in my frog room then I had my living room was like my my Madagascar room I called it because that had all the chameleons and the day geckos and there were a, probably probably 10 to 15 different species there amongst that and then I had a, what I called the nocturnal room which had, you know, like the crested geckos and things like that, kind of odds and ends. And I probably had another handful of species back there, probably another five to 10. And then in my bedroom at that point, I had the chameleolus. And oh my gosh, they were my favorite. And I had a bunch of those. So I had quite a few species. And I'm actually really glad when I did that was room tours, which I did two videos. I did a one minute long for Instagram because I couldn't post the longer ones on Instagram. And then I did like a 20 minute long, I think, or 15 minute long, more in depth of the room tour for the YouTube channel. Um, And my favorites, I had so many favorites. I had, I mean, I definitely had favorites in my frog room. The chameleolis, they were some of my all-time favorites. But then also like the Vietnamese mossy frogs, they were so fantastic. And then the panther chameleons, they were just out of this world. And then the Felthuma clemmari, I don't know how you pronounce that, but that's how I pronounce it. They were they were definitely some of my favorites. I feel like I feel like 50% of my collection was my favorites. Like I couldn't even. They all had something so different to offer, and that's kind of why I liked having the variety. Because they they had something so different to offer, but they were just magical in their own different ways, you
0: know. I, I also I have a, a trio of Mossies. I th- I think they're all male. I'm mean, in here calling and I've, i I what they look like they had nuptial pads. Was it you, you bred yours. Was it hard to get a female? Because I've heard that they kind of skew male depending on what the water it's temperature t- is.
1: Yes. Yes, I, I actually, I don't know, I kind of got lucky. There was somebody in Florida that was selling them. And um, I, I, I initially purchased, I think, four juveniles and then a proven male. And I suppose at least one of them ended up being female because she bred so many. I probably ended up producing like at least 30 or 40 mossies. While I had them, and actually, the lady who now owns my colony is still (laughs) producing the Buffy frogs. Like my same colony is still producing years later, which I'm actually so thrilled about. Um, They, I, I, they, it just happened. To be honest, pretty much, I would, I would venture out and say, 100% of the breeding that happened under my roof had nothing to do with me. Like they, they were just kind of happy and then had the right conditions, I suppose. And then they just did it. Cause I never bred on purpose, you know, and I actually never kept anything for the purpose of breeding everything. They were all just like my pets and it was, I just had everything just for my own joy and enjoyment, you know? Um, so the breeding was kind of just like a positive side effect. And I was incredibly surprised like every time that I, found eggs or babies. It was, it
0: was awesome. It's a great feeling. And it, it's, it's funny that you say that. Cause I remember watching the videos and I was thinking I was like, she has to have this like magic touch or she's putting a tremendous amount of effort into like creating, you know, sex trios and pairs because almost everything you had bread and bred really well. Like I've been staring at my trio for like maybe three or four years here and I haven't gotten anything. I figured out right, if I just kind of like, like the, um, Like the spaghetti analogy, you know, if you throw spaghetti at the wall, something will stick. So I just figured, okay, I'll just I'll get a decent sized colony going and hope for hope for a female, and I never got it. So then it's like, well, yeah, Yeah, it's like, like, do I want to invest in another one or a couple more? I'd have to grow them out, and then what do I do if I get all males again? Because they are pretty; they're actually pretty popular in the hobby now. I don't really understand why. Because I mean, I understand why I like them because they have the cryptic coloring, and it's it's cool when you do see them. And they're also really, really easy to keep, but I don't really understand like why anyone would kind of like gear towards them who was kind of like on the fringes of the hobby. I I don't know. That's just me. My, my opinion.
1: I think I missed
0: that. I'm sorry. I just said that, um, I, uh, you know, I keep, I keep, uh, Mossy's as well. And I never really understood like what their appeal was to people outside the hobby because you don't really see them that often. I mean, when you do, it's amazing, and they're actually really easy to care for, but they're they're pretty popular species now. I kind of never kind of really understood why. Oh,
1: really? Mine? I saw mine all the time.
0: I mean I, I mean, I see them. I see them, but if I had, like, my kids come down, they're not going to see them because of their camouflage. You know what I mean? Like, you and I can kind of pick them out because we're looking, but to, like, the average person, it's not necessarily like um, like, like a turbilis. Or, um, you know, like one of the tanks that's really, like, brightly colored and is kind of like a showcase species. Like, these guys, you have to actually make an effort to look for them.
1: Right. Yeah. I I don't know any beginners that were really into them. Oh, that's a nice. oh, I have a dog and my dogs love talking to them.
0: It's okay. It's okay.
1: Um. Yeah, mussies are great. They. I probably would not recommend them to a beginner for sure, but they... For that reason, you know, the thing I had, you know, I had a lot of dart frogs and a lot of different species. And what I noticed is that I didn't see all of them all of the time. And that's why I liked having so many, uh, because then I was guaranteed to at least see some of them all of the time.
0: I had that too. I have, uh, there's a couple of species, like there's a couple of species that I just see all the time because they're really, really bold. And it it varies on like individuals too. Like I'll have some individuals that are just more bold than others. You know, I'll have some that are a little bit more elusive, but it it's nice because it's like you you don't you get that variety of experience, experiencing the animals in their vivarium at different times, different you know, different times of day. Some will come out when you go to feed. I mean, I, I actually have some that will kinda just like they'll actually jump out of the vivariums when I go to feed them. That's the like the feeding response I get from them. And I'll have others that I just don't s I just like never see. I mean even my erotus are fairly bold now when it comes to feeding, but like if they're not eating, then I don't see them.
1: Right. You know, just to just to circle around really quick before we finish that, we were talking about the breeding the animals. Yes. Um I think that the only thing that I did was just put a ton of love because I didn't spend a whole lot of time or I mean effort is, you know, I guess in the eye of the beholder, but I put I didn't put a lot of time into the actual care, which is why I was able to have such a huge collection for sustainable for such a long time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it definitely, uh, you know, I'm I, I didn't mean to imply that like, you know, you, you didn't, you know. Um, oh no,
1: you didn't. I was just thinking that.
0: Yeah. 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 Cause I just, I looked at it and I was like, I was like, I don't know what she's doing, but she's, Apparently, doing it really, really well because like everything you had, you know, produced. What was your your tadpole care like? Um, before we get to the dart frogs, I mean, your tadpole care for the mossies. Like, how were you keeping the tadpoles?
1: Um, in the tank with the adults, I I did you know just to be honest, I didn't have a whole lot. Oh, I didn't have a whole lot of um, a whole lot of luck when I pulled anything out of the adults' enclosure. Like, there were a few things, like the chameleolus, for example. Once I would find um, a baby, I would pull it for fear of the adults eating it, you know. But otherwise, I I didn't pull out, you know, a whole lot of eggs and tadpoles. I mean, I did, but I found that I I didn't have a a whole lot of luck with it. A little bit, maybe.
0: I've tried both ways. I've tried... I mean, I've, I'm still kind of tweaking it cause I have the only, tr- I have a trio of Epipeda babies which I talk about on like every episode because they're just, I guess they're my favorites by default, but they breed constantly. So it's kind of an expedited way to f- test your tadpole rearing skills because I've tried them different ways. I've tried re- raising them separately, uh, individually in cups, I've tried raising them individually in cups inside the vivarium, outside the vivarium. I've tried raising them communally in a 20 long with a heater. And right now, the biggest improvement I've got is honestly dealing with their diet. I I had a guest on a while back, and we were talking about tadpoles that had been deposited in in the wild. In in this case, it was Peru. And I asked him, I said, well, what is this like? He, He said that the amount of food that's in there, we're not really able to duplicate in captivity because there's just so much so right. what I'm trying to avoid is, I'm, I mean, I, I get some cannibalization and I'll get some die-offs. Now, I wanted to know, like, all right, what am I doing wrong? And I was so afraid of, you know, doing, um, I was so afraid about issues with water quality that I think I was underfeeding or I was feeding poor quality food. So when I really started putting food in there, I started with these, now I'm using these little spirulina like tablets that come from germany i i find them at like one of the big box stores i don't even know what it says but it's it's i've gotten results with that but the other thing Rapashi, uh uh the bearded dragon beardy buffet what yeah i That's start. So- yeah i started using that i i feed it my my beard well before covid started my bearded dragon was getting a, like a pretty varied diet and I had to switch him to something that was going to be nutritionally as complete as I possibly could if I couldn't go get crickets and, and roaches and stuff like that. Cause my roach colony, I kind of wiped it out and you know, he accepts that. And I thought to myself, I was like, look, and I'm like, well, like, all right, like, well, what are they getting in the wild? They're going to get some, they're going to get some algae, They're going to get dead insects. They're going to be getting some sort of a protein. So I just took a very, very small amount of the, like the gel premix and they went nuts for it. They ate it like crazy. And the clutch, Aww. yeah, the, the spawn that I have in there now is developing faster and larger. And I haven't had any issues with, with deaths or like, I mean, I don't necessarily know that they cannibalize each other per se. I don't know if they're just cannibalizing after one died, but I started just, I mean, it's just, a, it's just a deli cup. You know, they'll deposit in the bromeliad and then they'll dump it in the cup. I actually have two, there's two clutches in there, there's an older one and a younger one, but, um, you know, I'll just, I'll just change a little bit of the water, let the mister refill it. And so far, so good. I've, I've had good results, but you'd, you'd never you never would have, you never would have thought it, but I don't know. I don't know if they just need the extra protein. If it's, I don't know, but it seems, I seem to be having good results with it.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. I feel like those are the only things that you can find with trial and error, you know,
0: Yeah. And I mean, just since they reproduce so often, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, I have, they they lay probably like every week or every two weeks. So my issue has been just getting the tadpoles to develop pop legs and then metamorphose and then thrive through, you know, the, the froglet stage. Because I mean, from what I've heard from other people is that they're kind of difficult to raise from tadpole into froglet. And I've lost quite a few during that metamorphosis period. But Mm -hmm. I have, you know, out of all the clutches that they've laid, I have, I have two sub adults in, in, well, it's, it's, it's not a grot anymore. It's their full vivarium. And I have two in a, um, you know, in a sweater box set up that I'm raising them out now, but I'm hoping that this clutch will do better than the last. So if these guys do well, then I'll be happy and I'll at least feel like, okay, I'm doing something. (laughs) I'm doing something correct. Right. Yeah. So that just kind of worked for me. But I mean, it's oftentimes what I hear from people is observe, you know, just spend some time and actually watch what they do, you know, just observe them, see where they go, see what they're looking for. But I um, I've gotten some very, very good input from people out of country, like people in South America and. People who've been to places like Peru and Ecuador and whatnot—I mean, they see these things in the wild. They watch what they eat. They see what the tadpoles are eating. They see where they're depositing them. I actually learned more from people telling me about how they were, you know, cared for—well, not cared for—but how they existed in the wild than kind of like the, the textbook hobbyist type of stuff. But I mean, that was just me. But that's actually going to, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's actually going to kind of lead into my my next question. Now, one of your videos—you went to Costa Rica. What what was that like? Did you observe any frogs in the wild while you were there?
1: Oh, yes. One of my best friends from my childhood lives in Costa Rica. So I've been there three or four times now. And uh, I always tell her when I go, all right, Megan, I want to see frogs and I want to see see monkeys. Like, let's make this happen. Like, those are like my two prerequisites for, you know, like our jungle visit.
0: That's a uh, (laughs) win-win.
1: Exactly. And so, so I've been to many jungles. throughout the visits and so I've seen many frogs and it's been it's been awesome I really loved seeing them in their natural environment and seeing where they breed I remember being in a jungle and seeing this beautiful majestic tree and I was just in love with this tree it was huge and it was magical the root system was was amazing and I noticed that there was like a puddle Inside the root, and I look closer, and there were tadpoles in it. And I just remember, like my mind exploding, like, "Wow, this is literally them in the wild in their natural habitat." It was, it was definitely like an aratus tadpole, and um, and it, it was just kind of a full circle moment for me, kind of seeing this tadpole in this perfect little water pocket in the root of a tree and i was like how hard do we work to recreate exactly this and this tadpole is like seemingly carelessly just like in there you know uh but there was there were leaves on the bottom and it was definitely tannin water you know it was a little dark and um it was really cool to see that
0: yeah, it's got to be amazing to see them in the wild, especially, I mean, something, like you said, you put so much effort into in, in you know, in, in your house, and then to see it just happen naturally is is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, and to kind of see the conditions in which they do live, uh, because we, we try to, we have this idea when we build vivariums, you know, of how we want it to look like and yada yada, and just kind of seeing them just on this slope where it was just all leaf litter and almost no plants and just a couple of enormous trees and that's it. And, you know, you walk by and you see these frogs living there and you're like, wow, my frogs are living it up, you know, just in in these lush vivariums with all these plants that they love, you know, getting on the plants and under them and this and that. And these frogs are just in the wild in their natural habitat, just on this, on this slope with just, leaf litter i mean it was it was really cool to see the different places also were were the same i i went to this one jungle in costa rica and there were frogs everywhere they were full of frogs i mean i probably may have seen hundreds of frogs i think what were they they were Oh, i don't remember i think they were pumilio yeah they were pumilio and they were everywhere. Like, even even by the, the, there was like a front desk. It was kind of hotel-ish. I, oh, man, it, this is so long ago. Uh, I don't know if it was like a restaurant or like a hotel or like something, but there was a front desk. And I remember there being frogs just right by the front desk going is this real life how do I not live here like what's going on I never want to leave can I just like pop up a tent Like, (laughs) how are there so many frogs here they're all calling you know and because I had kind of the eye to, to see them I was spotting all of them and I'd be like Megan look look a frog and she was like how did you even how did you even see that
0: yeah it's one of those things your eyes just tend to I mean everyone everyone has different careers and different likes but it's funny because you'll look and see something that somebody else won't just because your eye is just subconsciously looking for it. Yes, exactly. I mean, did you go out at night at all? Did you see any of the nocturnals, like any nocturnal species of tree frog or anything?
1: I went, okay. So I did a one night hike in Manuel Antonio where I hired a guide and he kind of did a private night tour in this rainforest. And that was super cool because I, he asked me like what I was looking for. And so I was like amphibians and reptiles. That's what I want to see. And so he, he would get on all fours and like look for stuff for me. Um, it, like not like digging or anything, but he would get down and, you know, look for things for me to see. He was really great. And we went by this pond right outside the jungle and there were so many frogs. We saw red eye tree frogs. We saw these, these huge, enormous, the biggest frog I've ever seen probably a 10 pound frog um, and so many frogs there and they were, it was really loud. It was amazing. i I think I have that video up on my YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah.
0: I yeah. saw a couple, I saw a couple of minutes of it actually.
1: Yeah. That was, I highly recommend any, anybody like a into the hobby. I highly recommend making a trip to, there's many countries that have frogs, uh, but kind of going, Costa Rica is kind of an easy one, you know, Um, but going to a place and seeing them in their natural habitat and feeling what it feels like, you know, feeling the temperature, feeling the humidity and kind of seeing what it actually looks like, what the leaf litter looks like. I remember understanding leaf litter in that moment. The very first moment I saw my first wild dart frog, I remember just having this moment of complete understanding, you know,
0: Yeah, leaf litter is is interesting because I, one of the kind of trends, I don't want to say trend, but one of the, uh, I guess, old, I mean, well, one of the original ways of of thinking was something that needs almost 100% humidity needs to be on like a sopping wet substrate. Right. And it's not like that. And I was on... Um, I I was on dendro boards and I, I'm not, everyone knows I'm I'm not really active there. I go on occasionally. It's really just because I have a hard time with all the pop-up, like the pop-up ads and like you scroll through it and it says your phone's been like hacked. I just, that's my reason for not being on there. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just, it's a, it's a tech issue. But, um, someone went on, you know, showed a a short clip of some locale, tank. I don't even remember which one it was, but. It was just in the wild on the leaf litter. The leaf litter is not soaking wet. It's not saturated. It's not, you know, rolling around in cocoa fiber. It's just, it's it's dry leaf litter, but it's, it's humid. And when I first started making vivariums, I thought to myself, well, I have to have the substrate super wet to maintain the humidity. And then I realized I don't have to do that. I mean, now my substrate is relatively dry, but the humidity inside the enclosure, I've been able to kind of fine tune it so that I get it up to that like 90% Humidity with with some air exchange. I mean, I have I have air exchange, but it's enough to maintain the humidity. But it still lets some fresh air in there. And I found that my frogs like just do better because of that. You know, that's just yeah. they're they're on leaf litter, like the way they it's close to what they would be in the wild. They're not like in mud the way a lot of people keep them.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I found that it was really it was really hard to to kind of maintain a vivarium with stopping wet wet substrate because the plants would die. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The plants and the frogs weren't really about sitting in it either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they like, I I was like, why are my frogs constantly sitting on top of the cocoa huts? And then I realized they don't want, they don't want to sit on the substrate because it's, it's too wet. I mean, I had issues with my, you know, my drainage layer just being full of water. And at the time I thought that that was what it was supposed to do. But then I realized it's not, it's, you know, the substrate's not supposed to be soaking wet. It's not supposed to be holding water. It's not supposed to smell anaerobic. It should just be, you know, relatively, relatively dry, but with very, very high ambient humidity inside the vivarium.
1: Yeah, that was actually something that I had trouble with because I had, I had m- several misting systems and I had so many different sized tanks attached to the same system because I would kind of have a system per wall If I remember correctly, I would have one system per wall of animals um, or a room if there weren't that many, but I would have some tanks that would flood and that was just kind of a constant challenge for me to keep on top of just draining all of the excess water and and all of that.
0: Yeah, I was using a turkey baster. I kind of poked a little hole into one side of the enclosure into the drainage layer and i was using a turkey basin like i can't i'm like i'm doing something wrong here i'm like i shouldn't have to be doing this constantly and i changed the misting schedule around and then i didn't have that problem anymore i was just i was over misting
1: oh really yeah yeah. Um, i definitely tried different misting misting schedules but i don't know i guess i wasn't i wasn't terribly into the numbers i never used like a a thermostat or uh, um, a contraption to measure the humidity. I never used any of that. I kind of would just take cues from the enclosures themselves.
0: Do you think it was easy? I mean, you, you you're in Florida, right? You were, you were in Florida the whole time that you had your collection, right? Yeah. Do you think it was easier yeah. with like Florida's climate to kind oh, of replicate? Yeah. Okay, because I'm in the Northeast. I mean, I'm in New York, so it's 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 near impossible to duplicate that.
1: Oh, no. Oh, yeah. No, I just kept everything at room temperature. Like, I keep my house at about 76. So I just, I never really had to think about it too much because I just kept everything at room temperature. And, um, yeah, and the humidity is pretty high as it is, so I never had to worry about, like, drying out. Even when we get, like, cold snaps, my, my house doesn't go below, like, 72, you know? So.
0: Yeah, up here so, yeah. it gets it gets pretty mm-hmm. cold up here.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's just like the basement in, you know, in the, I have central air. So in the summertime, they don't overheat because it gets, you know, it gets brutally hot here in the summer too. But, you know, the, the air pulls a lot of the humidity out. And then I get that like one, maybe like two month period between like September and October where I don't have to put on the heat or the air conditioning and then it's like Rebel. normal, but then once I turn the heat on, like I have it on now, it, it pulls everything out. Like I had, we had a really bad storm here the other day, and it just like my basement floods sometimes. I got a foundation issue, but I mean, I turn the heat up to like seventy four, and it dries a bone down here now. And it just it 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 pulls so much moisture out of the enclosures that I have to really restrict the ventilation. Like at this time of year, more so than other parts of the year. So I, I envy a lot of people who live like in Florida because. It's like you said, it's got to just be kind of like, you know, you open the window and every day is kind of, you know, kind of the same, I guess.
1: Yeah. 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 We're definitely fortunate in that respect. I also think that's probably one of the reasons why the hobby is so big here because, because it's easy or easier.
0: Yeah. The ease of care has got to be a lot more convenient. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. What I mean, you when you had all these vivariums going, what was like a typical maintenance routine like for you? Because I, I, I always like to ask people how much time they spent in, I mean, your frog room was really your whole house, but how much <laughs> yes. like how much how much time were you devoting to the animals? Like and like did it ever get to a point where you were like, like, all right, like now I'm just I'm spending so much time on care. I'm not necessarily like I, I kind of reached like a critical mass where I say, All right, well, After I go over a certain amount, I'm like, I'm, I'm just, I'm spending so much time just feeding everything and taking care of it and handling their basic needs. I'm not actually making time to like sit and study them. I mean, did you have a similar experience or like, or what?
1: Um, not really, to be honest, I'm, I'm very systematic and I easily create structures. It's like my forte. And so it was extremely, that's actually why I had so many, because it was the same to me to have five frog tanks than to have like 35, you know, because the, the deciding factor is having to actually buy the stuff and set the time to do it. But then if you're doing a little bit or you're spending an extra 10 minutes, to me, it's the exact same. Um, so what I would do is I would so I would group the animals by care, right? So I would have essentially all of the the frogs together, but because they all had the same care. And then in the I had all the day geckos together together because they had the same care. And the reason I really got into day geckos is because they had similar care to the dart frogs, right? I kind of tried tried to stay within the same realms of care because even with my nocturnal geckos and with the chameleons the care overlapped so I had um I had the um, the fruit fly group which I did both mel- how do you say it melanogaster
0: melanogaster yeah
1: melanogaster and hidey eyes and then obviously the gecko food and then crickets and that was and so I had this three food group and I would have a round for each food group. So when I fed fruit flies, I would get, you know, my two cups, put the, the calcium in, dump all the flies into it and just boop, 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 just go from tank to tank. And I would do that twice a week. I would feed my frogs twice a week. Um, so I think Tuesdays and Fridays were my feeding days, if I remember correctly. And so, so I would feed them generously. And I found that they would eat for two days and then on the third day they wouldn't eat. And then by the next day I would be feeding again. Um, so that was kind of my, my fruit fly um, feeding schedule. And I would, I would probably spend 30 minutes doing that. And then once a week I would make cultures and I would probably spend maybe 20 minutes doing that. Um, Cause I made 24 cultures a week at my peak. Um, and then, and then the gecko food. Oh, that took no time. That would probably be like 10 minutes, even though I had to make, Hey, Nala. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs>
0: That's had, okay. That's okay. An empty
1: food bowl. Um, I had to make Let's uh, see. So we were on gecko food. Um, I, even if I had to make 15 or 20 gecko cups, It would only take me five minutes to distribute them, right? And I did that twice a week also on the same days. And then crickets. And the crickets were actually the most time consuming. Um, once a week I would receive like three or four thousand crickets or something, and then I would set them up. I would feed out half of them, set up the rest of them, and then on the other the next feeding day, I would feed out the rest of them and then clean out the bin.
0: So
1: I would probably yeah, I would probably spend, I don't know, like an hour and a half to two hours twice a week.
0: See, that's definitely streamlined. I mean, my a lot of my time goes into, honestly, dealing with like rogue fruit flies that have just gotten out. Because I've got a pretty decent size like spider. Because my, my frog is in my basement, so it's always kind of dark down here. And I've got a lot of house spiders, so I'm constantly like dusting between terrariums and vacuuming and whatnot that's what takes up a lot of my time but that's really just my fault for being sloppy with the fruit flies but interestingly oh, though, my I, house was, I'm, I'm sorry i didn't hear you
1: my house was just a jungle i just had bugs just you know i would have to <laughs> you know like like vacuum or or sweep up the dead bugs that were on the floor but yeah. It comes to a point where you just can't fight it. You yeah, know what I mean? With the Yeah. Tr- that I like it was just common to have like dead crickets around, which, you know, is probably not ideal, but I lived alone. And so it worked for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for I, I, our house is very, very forgiving. Um, my, my mother-in-law lives with us and she came into the kitchen one day with a dubia roach in a, in a, paper, oh, no. in a paper towel I mean it was dead and I said I said I don't know where that came from <laughs> but no everyone here is pretty permissive but this is just you know our way of life is a little different but I mean to me it's like oh man it's like I have to spend all this time vacuuming and dusting and whatnot and dealing with like I'm like I'm spending more time dealing with house spiders and dead fruit flies than I am dealing with like my animals I mean that was for me was just like one of those things where it's like oh I don't have to do this I mean the the, the cricket situation okay. actually I mean you were buying like what you say about 3000 a week. Is that what you were getting? Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. A week, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll order a thousand maybe once a month, but I'm also using, um, I, I don't know if, I don't know if they were still, if they were kind of like in vogue when you left the hobby, but I use banded crickets. They're not quite as loud and they live pretty much forever. So I can order. Really? Yeah. I can order a month's worth, uh, a month's month thus, God, a month's worth of crickets. And I can stick them into a couple of bins and they'll pretty much, they'll last for a month. I mean, I don't buy a tremendous, I mean, I'll usually buy like small crickets, um, maybe like one eighth to a quarter inch size. And I'll usually buy like a larger, like three quarter size. I keep them in two tubs and they're fine. I get like no die off. It's not like the domestic crickets where they'll like, you get one that will die and then that ammonia smell develops. And then they're all like doomed afterwards, so
1: yeah i definitely experienced that a lot that was my least favorite part the crickets. yeah that was the happiest thing that i was to get rid of to be honest to not have to deal with anymore was the feeders not that they were a problem during but afterwards it was just the biggest relief
0: yeah it's not fun to have to clean out a bin that just stinks of of ammonia. And it's, it's, it's another one of those things that just kind of sucks the fun out of it. Although, I mean, more and more, I've been kind of gravitating again towards like, you know, like uh species that will feed on crickets. Like, I mean, like when I get short on fruit flies, I know that like my, my terrabilis will take, they'll actually, they'll take like medium crickets. They'll take crickets up to about a half an inch in length. So that's nice because I know that like, if I have an issue with fruit flies, they're, they're hungry, they're big and they're hungry. They'll take the crickets. and I don't have to worry about you know, wasting like an entire culture worth just to feed that trio. Right. So it's just, for me, it's just, it's just peace of mind. Cause you know, the other thing is, it's like, uh, you can, you can always get crickets somewhere. Whereas like if my fruit fly cultures, let's just say I had something like they all crashed, then it's like, oh man, like now I have to order them, get wait for them to come in and then hope that they're all viable and hope that I can, I can, you know, use them to seat new cultures. So
1: yeah. You know, one thing that I always talked about was when you pick an animal, you're also picking their feeder as your pet. Yeah. So you know, just like yeah. pet, their feeder will also become your pet because you do have to take care of them as if it was the pet in order to, you know, gut load them and to water them and to make sure they have like the proper living environment and space in your house for them too. Like it's not just the animal you're getting. That was something that I had a lot of conversations about.
0: That's very true, and that's one of those things that people have to consider because I don't think that a lot of – like a lot of beginners will ask questions like, well, what do I need to do? And it's like, well, the first thing you need to do is you need to get used to culturing microphone. <laughs> yes. you, you, need, you need to learn how to culture springtails and fruit flies. And if you can handle that aspect of it, then everything else is relatively easy.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I found I found that jungle animals were the best for me. I definitely had the to touch with that because all you had to do was really invest in their initial enclosure, making sure that it had everything that it needed and then set it up to a misting system and then you're good to go. It was there's like the most low maintenance in my opinion because the it's kind of they're kind of like the species where the more the less you give them, the better in terms of like attention, you know? It's not like a mammals that need all of this interaction. But you know, just like the feeding twice a week and then every single day, every time I came home, I would go through every single tank and just do a round and just peek in everybody. So I found that I that I still spent a lot of time um, like looking at everybody and making sure that everybody was okay and they all came to know me, you know um, because I would I would circle around the whole house several times a day and take pictures and kind of sometimes I would even pull a chair in front of a tank just to hang out and watch them or you know sometimes I would build a new tank and before putting it in its space I would leave it on the table and I would just pull up a chair and just watch it I did that with the bumblebee toads when I first set up a new enclosure for the bumblebee that I had which was probably one of my favorite colonies of all time um, I built them and I had them on my dining room table for weeks and I would just mist them, and then sit in front of them and watch them all tumble out. I don't know if you're familiar with bumblebee toads, but they, as soon as you mist them, they all come out of hiding and just tumble around the tank. And they're, you know, the size of a quarter, so they're adorable. And <laughs> I spent entirely too much of my life literally doing that, misting them and just sitting them and watching them.
0: Yeah, I noticed that too. With like when my misting system, I, I hand missed some of my enclosures because some of them, were, some of them are small and like as soon as you missed and then all the little fruit flies and everything that were hidden in the substrate kind of come out and then you see them all yeah. come out and then they'll become more active. It's, it's, that's, that's the best part. It's just sort of watching them do like what they would do when you're not really around. But I, I know exactly what you mean about like them, them coming out. Cause like I get a feeding response out of almost probably like, like 85 to 90% of my collection, I get some sort of a feeding response where when I come around with that cup, they, they come out of their cocoa hides. They, you know, even the erotics, They'll come out and they'll be like, "All right, feed me, feed me, feed me." And it's like, "Okay, yeah. this is this is what I am to you is just this like, you know, this uh, like you know, hovering hand that just distributes f- food to you guys and nothing else." But yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, we're we're gonna wind down, but I just wanted to ask. you, I mean, you've been out of the hobby for a while, but one of the um, kind of new ways. I don't want to say the new way of thinking because it's always been a way of thinking, but there's been a lot more focus on sustainability and conservation in terms of the hobby. You know, there's a lot of organizations out there like Tesoros and Wakiri, which are sourcing frogs from their, you know, they're, they're providing the hobby with sustainable populations of frogs rather than having, you know, uh, people go into places where they shouldn't be and then removing frogs in the wild and then shipping them around the world under questionable circumstances. I mean, do you have any thoughts about like how the hobby can be like more responsible in terms of, you know, the, the animals that we source and like where, where, where we should go in the future?
1: Well, personally, 98% of the frogs that I personally purchased were from fellow breeders. I really was not into buying wild caught frogs. Um, it never really felt right to me. I mean, there were some where you couldn't get otherwise, like at a you know they had to be wild caught if you wanted any. Um, but I I never really gravitated towards wild caught frogs for that reason. I think that if you are going to go the wild caught route, to go to somebody who is conscious about what they're doing. You know because I there were there were several jungles that I went to and they were prolific. I mean it was insane the amount of frogs that were out there. They were. No, they were not suffering by any means in population. You know, you could, you could take 200 of them and probably not even notice. Um, Not that I'm condoning that, you know, but I think that supporting organizations that do do it um, sustainably and responsibly and kind of in harmony with the flow of the circle of life. I think that's definitely the best way to do it. I'm actually really happy to hear that, that that mindset is expanding because I think it's so important. You know, we kind of create these nature slices in our homes and we have to do so much in order to recreate what nature naturally creates, right? So it's kind of an oxymoron. But um but I'm really glad that it's taking a turn to be more sustainable in the sense of them providing frogs sustainably.
0: Yeah, I I've had conversations with people about. I mean, it it, it still don't get me wrong. It's, it runs the gambit. There are people with different attitudes about things, but the general consensus is any kind of niche uh, like hobby that has animals is always under some kind of scrutiny, and the frog world is not under the necessary. I mean, we're not like the big constrictor world where, you know, I mean. A 12-foot Burmese python in someone's, like, backyard in Florida, I, I mean, you live in Florida. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's big news. And obviously that community faces some repercussions because of that situation, which is there's a lot that went into that. It's not it's not just so much like one person let one snake go in the wild. There's, there's, there's a lot more to that that I've heard. But, you know, as people who keep exotic frogs, I mean, we're kind of responsible for our own hobby in terms of not – getting into trouble meaning if you want to continue to keep these things and it's it's not just frogs it's other it's like the tarantula community as well um you know certain species of lizards certain genera of lizards and whatnot you know people want to maintain their rights to be able to keep them but you have to be responsible so the last thing you want is number one just on a personal level i mean i, I at least i don't want to disrupt the natural order of things in terms of you know Pulling things I mean to me there's no sense in pulling a thousand wild caught frogs out of the wild, having them shipped all over the world to have five survive i mean that's just my personal yeah, yeah. and I think that the you know the the concern now is really to prevent that through you know sus- i mean through sustainable projects and as well as like captive breeding programs you know I mean obviously you have to have some wild caught come in, but if the wild caught's brought in appropriately with the purpose right. of expanding bloodlines, then i uh, you know fine but you know there's there's a lot of stuff going on there there's a lot of new regulations and i think the last thing anybody really wants is is more trouble for the hobby so to me at least it's a no-brainer just just you know doing the right thing but hey you know every, everyone has their own takes on it
1: yeah i think the important part is just kind of being in harmony with nature you know and having the right the right intentions behind it because when your intention is money then that's where I've I've never found anything good come out of when people do things for, you know. I mean, some like money has to be involved because that's the currency of how we, you know, get things done in this the way our society is set up. But um, kind of being aware of having the right intention is everything, both as the provider and as the consumer, you know. Yeah.
0: I mean, you run a business, you know, I mean, if you're going to maintain a business, you have to maintain it a certain way. You know, I mean, you can't, you have to, you have to source good materials. You have to, you have to, you have to, you have to provide your customers with something that with not only that they want, but something that also that they can trust.
1: Exactly. So. Exactly. Well. It's important.
0: Yeah. Um, well, my last question, do you ever think you'll return to the hobby?
1: You know, every time I talk about it, I get really nostalgic and I wish, and I, like a part of me wants to, but no, I don't know what the future holds. I know that right now I'm, I'm working on several different expansion projects for my business and I'm, I'm kind of putting everything that I have into that. And so I don't really, the reason that I sold everything was because I found that I needed to do that to put all of that time and energy uh, back into myself and my business um, and that I wasn't able to provide everything for the animals that that they deserved and that was probably one of the hardest lessons I've ever learned in my life you know and just to kind of release my attachment to them and to do what was right for them and to find them the proper homes where they could get what they deserved because they didn't choose to be alive. You know, I chose them to be mine. And so it was my responsibility at that point to honor their lives and finding a home for them where that would continue to be honored in the way that I no longer could. Um, but what I did, it took me two years to sell everything because I didn't just sell it to anybody. You know, I I definitely made sure that every home was a good home and everybody that bought something was just so excited. And that was really all I could have asked for, you know. And um, and once, once that happened, I actually reinvested all of that money back into the business and bought new machines and, and all of that. So it kind of was really nice in the circle. So right now I'm still in like my own personal journey outside of the hobby but I'm not gonna say no because I never know what the future holds ideally my goal is to buy a slice of jungle in Costa Rica and conserve it and to not need frogs because I am conserving them in the wild and that's that's like my ultimate dream that I'm working towards.
0: That's definitely something that's worth looking forward to, yeah, that would be great having your own little your your own little place in Costa Rica and just being able to enjoy things in your own backyard but exactly. yeah. No, I, 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 I yeah, I mean, I think that you know one of the i mean people might think it's corny or whatnot, but like one of the ideas that I think that are important and I like to, you know, base my keeping on is that like are you doing something for yourself or are you doing it for your animals? Are you keeping them in a way that is consistent with their lifestyle or are you keeping them in a way that's consistent with yours? And I feel like once you prioritize your need over theirs, you're just not, you know, like you said, you're not um you're not giving them the due diligence that they deserve.
1: Exactly, and that's where the intention comes in. I think checking your intention is the most important part and you have to be in harmony with your intention and what you're getting out of it and what they deserve as animals that don't have a choice, (laughs) you know? So kind of honoring their existence while still kind of meeting your needs and have that be in harmony is really the best way to go.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned choice. That's one of the things that I've You know, I never considered early on in my career of keeping exotics. And it's one of the things that bothers me now because I keep thinking to myself, okay, well, obviously I'm keeping these things in captivity. I'm keeping them in enclosures. How much choice am I limiting? I don't mean like choice, like in the sense of like anthropomorphizing them, but I mean like, well, let's just say that they're not comfortable in a certain part of the the vivarium. Am I providing them with enough of a microclimate to move to a a drier section, a moisture section? Am I, I mean, even like with my bearded dragon, I'm like, you know, I'm like, I have these lights coming on and off all day, but I'm not getting a sunrise. I'm not getting a a full noon sun and then a sunset. I mean, I have a photo period You know, I have a night drop. I have all that stuff. But I I often wonder like, you know, am I providing my animals with enough choices to be able to like live content? You know, I I don't know. Maybe it sounds crazy, but that's one of the things that I've kind of, that's my goal now is to provide my enclosures with enough space and enough, you know, uh, with enough correct husbandry that the animals have choices to move about, get, you know, to be comfortable and to experience something closer to what they would experience in the wild.
1: Right. You know, I have two things to say to that. One, just the fact that you have the awareness of that level of concern tells me that you're doing a great job. I really don't think that they're so complex to where they would get depressed because they don't have a sunrise or a sunset. You know what I mean? Um, I think they're, but just having that level of awareness yourself, I think is beautiful, you know, because that's how you know that you actually care for their well being. And um, the number two thing, I guess I already said it, like, I don't think they're that complex. I think not that they wouldn't appreciate it, but I don't think that they sit there and like, dwell on the fact of what they don't have. I think that what they do dwell on is what they do have. And maybe if they have a need that isn't met, you know what I mean? But I, it sounds to me like you're doing a great job.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the right that, That's kind of you to say. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, let me preface this. I don't, I don't think that they sit and they, they pine for, you know, I don't, I don't <laughs> think, yeah, I just mean like, you know, I just, I want to make sure that they're comfortable and not really not only comfortable, I want them just to make sure that they're that they're thriving to the best that I can provide for it. you know what i mean like i've I've started like up like kind of like I've started creating like larger enclosures, and I've kind of changed like i don't know I've just kind of tweaked some of my husbandry just like i don't know I just like to see uh, just like subtle differences, you know what I mean just to see that everything it just looks. I don't know. Looks, looks to be thriving more than, you know, other ways. I don't know. It's just, yeah. just me, just my great. personal thing, but yeah, I don't I thi- think
1: that's a healthy part of being in the hobby and kind of evolving as a keeper.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. You know, it's just, I think you reach different points where you have different goals for yourself. You know, like we said early on beginning of my, my original goal was I had to have everything and then, yes. yeah. And then as that kind of, I realize like, well, like, you know what, I, I, I don't wanna make this into a situation where I'm getting new things and ignoring the old. You know what I mean? I don't want to lose sight of what drew me to a certain species or a certain individual. You know what I mean? I don't know. That's just just me. I feel like there's kind of a kind of a progression, I guess, as you go through it. But everybody's different, you know what I mean? That's not to disparage anybody else. It's just my my personal take on it. Of course. Cool, cool. Um, so this is the part where we do my final thoughts, <laughs> like Jerry Springer. Um, I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we uh, before we end?
1: Um, no, I mean I'm I'm not so active on Instagram, but I I'm still on there. If anybody has any questions for me, I'm more than happy to to connect.
0: Cool, and I mean, did you want to mention your your, your business at all? No.
1: Well, Oh, I lost you.
0: Oh, I said, did you want to mention your business at all?
1: Um. Yeah. Well, I make, I manufacture empanadas. I am my day job is the I'm the empanada girl. This is like my double life right here. Um. And that's that's kind of what I do. I don't ship or anything, which I get so many requests for that. But I, I unfortunately don't do that. It's one thing paying fifty dollars to ship a pair of frogs. you spent a couple hundred dollars on, and it's another thing to ship. You know, like a. Some some food that people are not going to want to pay $50 for shipping. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I do. I do post a lot on my business Instagram. You know, I was finding that I was posting only on the Dart Frog Queen and not on my Instagram for work and what was actually like making my income. (laughs) And so that was part of the transition that I really had to do um so i am active there if anybody's interested in food and how we do that then that's a thing
0: very cool very cool all right well listen ladies and gentlemen stefania the dart frog queen i want to thank you so much for coming on the show it's been a. it's really been a great episode i'm really glad that we got a chance to talk
1: oh yes, yeah, thank you so much for having me i had a great time
0: my pleasure All right, everyone, I want to thank you all again. I want to thank Stefania for being my guest. And hope everybody continues to do well out there. Everyone take care of each other. Take care of your animals. I'll catch up with you guys again soon.